we're singing about the Lord Jesus. He's remarkable. Uh, to God be the glory. He, uh, he came here to redeem us, and he invested in a handful of men through whom you and I have heard the gospel in this very day. He had been with them. In fact, he was preparing them for his soon departure. The cross was right before him. In fact, from the time frame of the text we'll read tonight, it was just a few hours away. He was preparing them, therefore, for his departure, making use of the precious limited time he had with them. He had been teaching them. And then, as we mentioned, he seamlessly transitioned from teaching to praying. In teaching, he was speaking to them, and in praying, he was speaking to the Father about them. And we could listen in on his prayer. Is this not marvelous? Many of the Lord's prayers, of course, were private between he and the Father. But this one was deliberately offered so as to be heard by his followers, who later we came to call apostles. It taught them something, perhaps even more than all his teaching. And so it's recorded for us in John chapter 17, the entire chapter. It gives us an opportunity to eavesdrop on the Lord's personal communion with the Father. To give you a little summation, in the first five verses, which we looked at in prior weeks, we can hear the Lord praying for himself. Now that's amazing, is it not, that the Son of God would have felt a need to do this, but he did, because don't you see, the cross was just ahead of him. He was no crazed martyr. I tell you, if there was any other way for us to be redeemed, he would have exercised it. But he knew without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And it was his blood that would be shed in order to provide atonement for us. So in the first five verses, he prayed for himself. But that's not all. In verses 6 to 19, he prayed for these 11 it would be great if he was able to pray for 12, but the 12th had already departed. They were gathered together at the Last Supper in the famous upper room, and the betrayer, oh my goodness, he was given every opportunity to turn back from his evil inclinations, but did not, and he exited prematurely. He left them, so they're down to 11, and in verses 6 to 19, the Lord offered prayer for them. And now tonight, as we finish this chapter, in verses 20 to 26, this is remarkable. You will hear the Lord praying for believers like you and I. So let's take a look, beginning in verse 20 of John chapter 17. Look what it says. I do not ask. It's the Lord praying to the Father. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, the these are the eleven, but for those also who believe in me through their word. He had been asking the Father to provide for those things he felt would be needed by the eleven, and now he is asking the Father for those things needed by, as it says, those who believe in me through their word. I ask you this. It's rhetorical, so this is just private. Do you believe in Jesus? If so, uh, you need to be persuaded of this because it's true. He is praying for you. This is overwhelming. 
the transcendent Son of God is praying for you if you believe in Him. And how, by the way, I'd like to ask you this, did you come to believe in Him? Uh, uh, could I answer for you? You came to believe in Jesus by hearing or by reading the words of these disciples. That's how you came to faith. In fact, these are the ones who wrote the New Testament. And the gospel message, the very good news of forgiveness in Jesus, is contained in the New Testament. That's what you heard and came to believe in. Therefore, you have come to believe in Jesus, as it says in verse 20, through their word. And if this is the case, know this, the Lord is your Lord. And your Lord, the one who prayed for them, is also praying for you. This is quite overwhelming. By the way, that's the assurance you and I need to know we're going to make it through a wilderness journey like ancient Israel's, onto our place of promise, that's heaven. What ensures that we'll reach our destination? It is uh, the fact that the Lord Jesus is interceding for us. So have you come to a point of faith uh, personally expressed in your acceptance of the Lord Jesus as Savior? If so, I hope you're persuaded of this fact you were already on his heart even before you lived. He was praying for you before you were born, knowing in advance that one day you would be born anew. It's remarkable. So these men, chosen by the Lord, uh, they're thoroughly human. We spoke about this. They're like you and I. There's nothing really special about them. They're ordinary. They were entrusted with an extraordinary thing, but they're rather flawed individuals. And yet the Lord intended through them to reach many peoples in many places and through many times with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was confident that these flawed individuals, smelling fishermen, a number of them, we mentioned last time, would, with the help of his spirit in them, who had not yet come into them, and with the help of his intercessory prayer for them, the Lord was confident that these flawed individuals would in fact be able to accomplish the great work entrusted to them, which is that of bringing the gospel to the world. Now, was the Lord right to place his confidence in them and his supply in them? Was he right to conclude that they will finish the mission entrusted to them with success? Did they, in fact, these apostles, these flawed individuals, did they succeed? The answer is yes, and I can prove it to you. Look around. If you're a believer, you are exhibit A. 2,000 years removed from all this, somehow you've heard of the gospel. It's the gospel that was entrusted to these apostles to begin with. You heard about it. It's been transferred through the eons. It's been recorded for our review today. It's called the New Testament. Somehow you crisscrossed with it. Somehow it fell upon your ears and it softened your heart and it constrained your will. What is it? It's not a new thing. It's the word entrusted by the Savior to these 
flawed individuals. Did it work? Oh, you're darn tootin' it worked. We are evidence of the fact that the Lord's enablement of flawed individuals, his prayer for them, and the fact that he actually indwelt them with his Holy Spirit, enabled flawed individuals to accomplish, wow, the greatest work on earth. I emphasize this because uh, the Lord Jesus intends to get the job done through one such as you and I as well. And we are no more nor no less flawed than these individuals. But we have his intercessory prayer to the same extent that they did. In fact, I'd like to read you this. These are the words of Paul as expressed in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 19 and 20. He's writing to the believers at Ephesus. Listen, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. No, no, you're fellow citizens with the saints. In fact, you are of God's household having been built. Here's the part I want to emphasize. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles, they gave us the New Testament, and prophets, they give us the Old Testament, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the words given by God to the prophets and the apostles, in other words, and scripturated truth known as the Bible, that has become the foundation of the church for all time. Could I just parenthetically offer this? I don't want to make a big deal over it, but uh, there are folks who take upon themselves today, ministers, uh, various faith groups, they take upon themselves sometimes the title of apostle. Well, I don't want to make a big deal over it because the word has a general application. Um, but I hope they're distinguishing their apostolic role from these writing apostles. Folks, nobody wrote scripture but the prophets of old and the apostles of old. And it's on the foundation of the word of the prophets and apostles, that's what Paul says, that our faith is built. And so if there are modern-day apostles, I assure you, they are entirely different than these apostles. At best, a modern-day apostle is illuminating the words of the original apostles, but is not adding to it. There is no need for more inscripturated truth because what we have from Genesis to Revelation covers eternity past and eternity future. I would be very careful, therefore, uh, of attaching yourself to a so-called apostle or prophet who ain't one. These are the real deal right here we're reading about, and I don't know about the others. And so the Lord prays, I don't ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. At the time, nobody did yet. These are a bunch of scared folk, ordinary, uneducated, unsophisticated folk. They don't know what's going on at all. And yet, when, as in Acts, they become empowered by the Holy Spirit, good night, they'll go throughout the world with the gospel message. Now, what is it, in fact, that the Lord is praying? Here it is, verse 21, that they may all be one. Not the apostles, but those who will believe through them, that they, all believers, may be one. In what sense? even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? Well, so that the world may believe that you sent me. 
So I want to take that, this apart a little bit. And I hope, uh, I think you can comprehend this. My concern is my ability to explain it. So, so bear with me. I, I'm trying. Here the Lord clearly prays for unity. That is to say, for oneness among those who, through the words of the apostles, would believe in him. In other words, he's praying for us. Notice this, however, about the unity the Lord is praying for. It's a kind of unity uh, with others based upon their unity with the Father and the Son. So look what it says. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. In other words... I cannot have unity with someone who only professes to know Christ, but is not by faith united to him and the Father. So I'm not working at being united with every religious group on earth. In other words, I'm not in any way thrilled about the so-called ecumenical movement. Let's all get together and sing songs or whatever, hold hands and sing kumbaya. I really don't have anything in common with those who are not first in a spiritual unity with the Father and the Son. So be careful. This unity is not, you know, let's all get together and, you know, I don't know, get rid of all differences and theological distinctions. No, 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 no. This unity is one characterized by our fundamental uh, uh, precursor, which is by faith, a unity with the Father and the Son. Anyone who by faith is united to the Father and the Son is someone we want to be united with. So that's what it's talking about. So, uh, again, taking a closer look at what is said, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, implies the Father and the Son are one. We would all agree. They have been one from eternity past and always shall be one. They have a kind of a special unity or oneness. So I asked the question, what is it that makes it special? What characterizes the unity in, we can call it the Godhead. I don't know if you've heard that term, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's called the Godhead. What is it that makes that unity uh, distinct and special? Well, I think it's because each member of the Trinity seeks to honor the other. The Father seeks to honor and please the Son, and the Son seeks to do the same. In other words, there's no rebellion in the unity of father and son. There's no adversarial relationship. There's no disobedience. There's no sin in the unity between father and son. In fact, their unity is characterized by the absence of sin or by holiness. And I think it's that kind of unity here that the Lord is praying for. We can call it a kind of unity of holiness. Now, I'll tell you why it's important to know that. Folks, uh, we Christians are never going to agree about all things. That cannot be what the Lord is praying for. If so, that one has never been answered. We differ in many ways. For instance, we don't agree on worship styles, do we? Even here, we have do different kinds of services. In fact, it's very, I remember when I pastored a church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, we too had different services, one of a more traditional kind, one of a more contemporary kind. 
it was very difficult. If I met someone outside of the church and I wanted to invite that one to church before I did so, I had to try to size them up so as to figure out which service to invite them to. And I had to kind of think, do they look like an organ person or do they look like a guitar person? You know, it's kind of a weird deal. Then I don't know how to resolve that sort of a thing. And you say, well, the Lord prayed for our unity. No, no, not in terms of musical tastes. He didn't. That's not what's in view here. What about this? Uh, have you heard the word polity, church polity? That means how churches are organized or governed. It's done in different ways. Some have elders in them. Others have a senior pastor in them. It's, some operate by congregational rule and so on. Now, I think we can argue which is the most biblical church polity from the Bible, and we're, we're just never going to agree on that. Did the Lord's prayer for unity fall on the Father's deaf ears? No, no, no. I guarantee you what the Son prays for is going to be answered by the Father. So he's not praying for organizational unity either amongst churches. Which is the denomination that uh, has most biblical truth? Is it ours? Well, of course, we'd say yes. <laughs> That's why we, we belong to it. Others may differ. And, you know, a lot of people say, you know, well, this is a terrible thing. You Christians can't agree on stuff. Look at all the different denominations. There are thousands of them. Did the Lord's Prayer again end up not being answered. No, no, no. That's not what he's praying for. He's not praying for denominational unity. What about theological differences? Do you know we Christians have a lot of uh, theological difference of opinion? Don't get nervous about it. We don't differ about essential things, but we do differ about collateral things. For instance, modes of baptism, women's roles in the church, the whole nature of salvation. Did God save, did God choose us or did we choose him? The whole uh, um, uh, predestination versus free will discussion. My heavens, we have theological difference about future things or eschatology. All the, it just goes on and on. Did the Lord's prayers fail to be answered? No. He's not praying for these things. You know what he's praying for? A kind of a unity characterizing those whom he has redeemed, which is like the unity between father and son. It's a unity of holiness. The Lord Jesus is asking for a group of people who live transformed lives to such an extent that they look separated from worldly ways. They once were enmeshed in it, but upon being saved, they're acting differently. They're holy as he is holy. Not individually, but collectively in such fashion that the world could take note. Good night. That people group is different. And when that happens, this happens. It says so, so that the world may believe you sent me. You see, it's not going to impress the world if we're united denominationally or liturgically or organizationally or musically. That doesn't impress the world. Anybody in the world can do that. People unite over common interests, ethnicities, skin color, and all political affiliation, even favorite sports teams. You know what I mean? So that's not what the Lord is talking about. What wins people is when a group 
previously given to worldly ways, sinful patterns of behavior, somehow, because of their faith in Christ, as a community, are living life in an entirely different way. And what they have in common, though they be diverse in other ways, is a kind of a different lifestyle. They're in the world, but not of it. And when that happens, the world may believe that you sent me. How in the world could... Could the world really respect our message when we tell them, Jesus saved me from my sin, and yet I keep sinning? It doesn't look like he saved me, and therefore why should they be interested in him who didn't, doesn't seem to work for me, working for them? Can you see what he's about? Folks, when we claim Jesus delivered us from sin, and when we live holy lives, we prove it. We do not undermine our preaching. We prove that Jesus, sent by the Father to save us from sin, did in fact, did in fact do it. So the Lord is praying for our unity characterized by holiness because he wants people to look at us and say, wow, this Jesus, who they claim to be their redeemer, deliverer, and savior, must in fact be who he claims to be because he delivered them from their sinful ways. So... Uh, I was in college a long time ago, and I had a friend, and uh, we were very close friends, and we did a bunch of, I wouldn't say bad stuff, just stupid stuff. So we were in a fraternity together, and one time we're sitting on the porch of our fraternity house, and a faculty member had the nerve to park his Volkswagen bug right in front of our house. Well, that's not his spot, that's ours. So when he left, my friend and I gathered a bunch of the other guys who were in the house and we carried his Volkswagen bug one block away. We, we lifted it up and just stuck around till this professor whose head was in the clouds already, uh, you know, was looking up and down the block for his car. We would do stuff, okay, maybe we did do bad stuff. I'll tell you this, this really has nothing to do with the message, but I really want to tell you this. So one time, my friend and I had nothing to do. So we went to the college art gallery. This university had, you know, a private art gallery, had traveling exhibits. We went to it, and when we went there, we saw, oh my goodness, what kind of art is this? One uh, exhibit was a pile of, it was pop art. You know what I mean? So one was like a pile of bricks, that's all. And the school paid thousands of dollars, art tuition money, to get this goofball exhibit. Well, that's what we thought. Sorry if I've offended you pop artists who may be out there. Anyway, we decided to do something about it. So we got a big piece of plywood, and we got a bunch of wire. And we just entangled all the wire together and nailed it to the plywood, and we labeled it, Wire We Hear. <laughs> and, uh, and we snuck it into the art gallery. And we told our friends and even faculty members, there's something you don't know about us, but we're artists. We don't like to call undue attention to ourselves, but we're having an exhibit in the art gallery, and we'd like you to come by. Well, man, tons of people did. And they stood around this goofy thing that we made up, and they were asking us questions about it, and we were answer answering like artists. I remember like one gal, she said to me, uh, do you typically work through this media? That's what she said. And so I, I, I answered as best I could like an artist, and I said, no, not often. This is a new expression of our innermost feelings. Generally, I prefer to work with paper mouché. 
You know, anyway, I'm just going on like this, going crazy. Anyway, it stayed in there for about three days until the art director realized it was in there, and then he sort of removed it. <laughs> then another student picked up on uh, what we were doing and snuck a toilet bowl in there and put a sign on it, please do not sit on the art. And so, so, uh, so that story has nothing to do with the text, but I really wanted to tell you that. Those were good days. So years later, I became a Christian. After this, I became a Christian. I'm in, the, I'm in the military. I get a call, I don't know what time, 10, 11 at night, from this friend of mine I hadn't seen in years. He says, he calls me by name. He said, I'm here in town at the bus station. Can you come get me? I'm just traveling across country. I said, absolutely. So I got in my car to go to the bus station, about 40 minutes away, to pick him up. I'm, at this point, stationed on a military installation. I'm thinking on the way there, oh, my goodness, my friend is going to want to do this stuff we used to do, but I'm not going to do the stuff I used to do because it's different now. I've been saved, and I don't desire to do the things I used to do. And so I determined through prayer, I would tell my friend as soon as I could about my salvation. We're in the car, and he said to me, what's new? Well, I just told him I am. And he said, what do you mean? And I had 40 minutes to share the gospel with him, and he still intended to go with me. So I snuck him in the barracks, which you're not supposed to do, but I did it. And uh, there was an extra bunk in, in our room, and he bunked there. And uh, I thought he's going to be asking me to do things we used to do, and, and I would tell him, no, I, I'm not going to do those things. And, and that's what I did. And then I invited him next day to a Bible study we had in my room. It was a, quite a diverse group of guys in there, black guys and uh, Filipino guys and uh, Hispanic guys. That's the beauty of the military. throws you together. And... One token Jewish guy, for crying out loud. And we were doing Bible study. And every, but the guys were different, temperamentally, in the way everyone dressed, and culturally, and the whole thing. But we had kind of a holy unity produced by a very holy God and Savior. And there we were, guys, some were from the streets of L.A. and other big cities and stuff like that. Nobody cussed. Nobody snorted smoked, shot up, drank. Nobody was doing that. Nobody was vulgar. Nobody dressed inappropriately. Nothing. And my friends stuck around. And I thought for sure he's going to bail out when the Bible study is over. He was a party guy. And we're not partying. We, we found the joy of the Lord. We didn't need to do those things. Well, not only did my friend not bail out, he stayed away, around for a whole week and came to many Bible studies. And then he said to me, I need to admit to you, my lifestyle, this is what he said, is not meeting my needs. In all the years in which I knew him, we never had a serious conversation ever about life and meaning and purpose. It was just party time. I did not see him accept the Lord during that visit. I, I hope he has since. But here is my point. It was the unity of holiness which he perceived in an otherwise very diverse group. Look, if the Filipino guy hung out with other Filipinos, that doesn't win anybody. 
supposed to be that way. If the black guy hung out with only other black guys, what's new about that? If the Jew from New York only hung out with other Yankee Jews, what is so special about that? Everyone gravitates to their own kind. But when a diverse group can be shown to be united by a new lifestyle entirely different than the one that used to live, a kind of a separated holy lifestyle, people take note. And that's the unity the Lord Jesus is praying for, a unity of holiness because it's that unity and only that one which will make it easier for people to see and behold Jesus as the Savior. So, when unbelievers look at Christians, do they see holy unity? Now, here's where I have to tell you what you already know. Sadly, oftentimes, no. Just yesterday and today, I was reading about a very influential, well-known pastor in the Chicago area whose tenure has ended in disgrace because of sexual improprieties. And then I read about another pastor in the same geographical area who uh, also has been released from his church because of financial misappropriation and other horrendous uh, allegations. And then I read about a well-known Christian athlete who is separated from his wife and is in the process of filing for divorce, claiming that she committed acts of marital infidelity. Listen to me. I'm not looking down on them because I, you, have the potential to commit any sin prohibited in the Bible. It's in us. It's in our nature. Given the right circumstances, there's nothing someone else has done we're not capable of doing. So as a believer, I'm not looking down on them, but I am saying when the non-Christian world sees that, it really invalidates our gospel message. We tell people, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old ways have passed away, and the new things have come, and yet we are given to the old ways, you see. And so our lifestyle oftentimes undermines our evangelistic efforts. What does this mean? Oh, you and I may be need to make a recommitment to a holy lifestyle, one that befits a holy Savior. And we could know, though it's a challenge and requires a measure of discipline, we could know we could have victory in it. Why? Because Jesus himself is praying that very thing right now for you and I. Why? So that corporately folks can distinguish this community of believers as being different, not weird, not odd. No, they just don't do certain things. They just don't drink certain things. They just don't say certain things. They're different. Maybe this Jesus, who they claim to be their Savior, maybe he is who he says he is. And so... The convincing argument that there is a Savior who delivers from sin is a holy life, you see. And it is this community of folk in this holy oneness that the Lord is praying for 
here, it seems to me. Now, is this realistic? Is the Lord praying something that actually can be answered and come to pass? Yes, he can, it can be. And how? Well, the next verse tells us, verse 22, I'll pick up the pace. The glory which you have given me, he's praying to the Father. The glory which you, Father, have given me, I've given to them. Somehow, the Lord has given us glory. What kind of glory? His glory. Why did he do it? That they may be one, just as we are one. So, what enables our unity? It's the fact that the Lord's glory somehow has been dispensed to us. Now, we got to think about that. What's in view there? Listen, Jesus is fully God, yet took on flesh. In human form, you have divinity. Glorious. The whole concept of the God-man is glorious. It's that kind of glory which the Lord has given to us. What do I mean? In our flesh, he sent his spirit, the spirit of Jesus, to indwell us. And therefore, he imparted his glory to us. Just as he was God contained in human flesh, we're not God, but the Lord Jesus sent the spirit of God into us so that though we be and fleshed also, still we're inhabited by the very Spirit of God. That's the glory God has given to us. And the Lord knew this ragtag bunch of Galileans who he invested his life in to carry and perpetuate the gospel message to every generation since then. He knew they would succeed for two reasons. They would be inhabited by his Spirit first, and second, he would intercede for them. Folks, the Lord is praying for our holy unity. He wouldn't pray for something that could not be. He wouldn't do it. He's praying for our holy unity, knowing full well it can be a reality because his spirit has taken up his abode in our life. He is the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 23, he continues to pray, I in them. See? I in them glory of the presence of Almighty God in ones such as us. Jesus in us. I in them and you in me. Why? That they may be perfected in unity. We can't do it by sheer force of will or by resolutions or by self-help books, but we can do it by the Holy One taking up his residence in our life. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know. Here we go again. What's the purpose of this holy unity? So that the world may know you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. The kind of unity you see the Lord is praying for is not uniformity. Uniformity does not win anyone to Christ. People like to hang out with people, as I say, just like them. Oh, no, he's praying for a, a supernatural unity amongst otherwise diverse people, black and white and male and female, and Jew and Gentile and old and young and all the rest. Now, when that group is united by a kind of a holy lifestyle, good night, it's inexplicable. The world cannot attribute it to common principles of human nature. That is, we gravitate towards those like us. What if we are together with those who aren't like us? Oh my goodness. And we're all together in living a God-honoring lifestyle. The world has to take note. It doesn't guarantee they'll accept Jesus, but it makes it easier for them. I'll tell you that. So that's kind of what's happening 
over here. Now, don't miss this in verse 23. Jesus tells us, if I'm reading this correctly, that the Father has loved us just as he has loved him. Look, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, that's you and me, loved them even as you have loved me. Take that home with you. Chew on it. You know how the Father has loved the Son eternally? You know how the Father has loved the Son without limits? You know how the Father loves us? The same way. That's a rough one. I doubt there's one person here who gets that. I doubt there's one person. Experientially, why? We know what we're made of. We are unlovely. And yet this passage says, to the extent the Father has loved the Son, to the same extent, we are loved. Wrestle with that one. When your head hits the pillow tonight, you're thinking about all kinds of stuff that's keeping you awake. I'm not talking about some positive thinking. I'm talking about Bible truth. It says right here, even as you have loved me, I want the world to know you have loved them. Go to bed tonight and say, oh, Father, help me to accept the fact that you love me just as you love your only begotten, one-of-a-kind son. By the way, that's our common ground, that every Christian, regardless of worship style, preference, liturgy, polity, collateral theological matters, racial, distinctive, age, all the rest, this is what unifies us. We are all recipients of the Father's love in Christ Jesus. Jesus envisioned something I'm not sure you and I can get a hold of, but he did. He was able to see a reality in the future somewhere. We can argue when in the future, some other time, but we know it's the future. It's recorded in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Listen, after these things I looked, says John, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count. Listen, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, a symbol of purity, and palm branches, a symbol of peace between us and God, were in their hands. And they cry out, all these different people cry out with a loud voice. Here's what they say, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Oh, yeah, the Lord's prayer is going to be answered. Diverse people groups, every skin color, gender, age, and ethnicity, and nationality, and language groups, in the end we will gather before the throne and with one voice cry out in worship, salvation to our God who sits on the throne. And that kind of unity of praise and worship of the one true God emanating in our holy living that's what Jesus is praying for because that's what gets the world's attention more than anything. And there's something else the Lord prays. Verse 24, Father, says he, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus, get this, desires for us to be with him. Folks, let's face it. There are folks who wish you to be gone. They don't want to hang with you. You know that. 
And yet the King of kings, the Lord of lords, states his clear desire, puts it in the form of prayer to the Father. I desire that they whom you've given to be with me, be with me where I am. Why? So that they may see my glory. You know what the Lord Jesus wants to do for us? He wants us to be with him in heaven forever so that he could put his glory on display. And there's so much of it, it will take eternity for him to do it. Can you imagine? This is what the Lord wants for us. That's assurance of salvation right there. Not because I'm holding on to him, but because he's holding on to me. In fact, he's praying to the Father. This is my desire, Father, that they make it through. Those who you've given to me and have responded by faith, that they be with me where I am. You know what's interesting? He's not even there yet. He's praying about a future event as if it already took place. Why? Because what he purposes is so sure of accomplishment, you can speak of it as if it's already done. Father, I want them to be with me where I am. I want to display my glory to them. Well, have you heard of a guy named D.L. Moody, great evangelist of old? Here's what he said. He said, when I get to heaven, I want to sit with Jesus for a thousand years. And then maybe I'll ask, oh, by the way, where's Paul? You know what he's saying? Not that he's not interested in Paul. We all are. Don't we want, don't we want to see David and Moses and Peter, all these people, and John, everybody up there? But, but Moody was saying, oh, my goodness, I'm going to be so captivated by being in the presence of the glorious one. As he puts on display his manifold glory to me, nobody else there is going to matter. Oh, yeah, where's Paul? No, I want to see Jesus. Folks, if you have come to Christ, you have the certainty of being with him in heaven because that's exactly what he's praying. Father, I want that one who you've given to me, who's responded, I want that one to be with me. You're not going to make it because you're hanging on. Your grip is too weak. You're going to make it because the Father's prayer from the Son is going to be answered. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me be with me where I am. Again, it didn't even happen yet. The Lord was living now as if a heavenly reality was already true. And it occurred to me, ah, that's how we are to live. We're confined to this earth. We can't get out of it. We can't rush our departure. We have to wait for the Lord to take us out. I got all that. And yet we're supposed to live here as if we're not citizens of here, but as if our citizenship is in heaven. We are to live here with a heavenly, eternal perspective. This is brought out again in Ephesians 2. Listen. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, listen, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are already there. We are already seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus, so says Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore, all that has to happen is we have to catch up with that reality. But we are to live here as if it's a done deal. And now in his closing words, the Lord declares his complete confidence in the Father. Look, verse 25. Oh, righteous Father, although the world has not known you, I, I, I've known you, and these have known that you sent me. Oh, righteous Father. These are words uttered by the Son who's about to be impaled on a cross. This, according to the plan of his Father. 
And yet, if anyone had the opportunity to say, Father, this doesn't look right to me. This doesn't look like you're being very righteous. Why are you asking me to take the cross for those people? I never sinned. I'm the sinless one. Why are you asking me for a spell to experience broken fellowship with you? That doesn't look righteous. And yet, even in the shadow of the cross, look at how he's able to address his father. Oh, righteous one. The son knew the father loved him no matter what. And he knew the father was up to good things. We have to know that. We go through pretty painful stuff here. Hardships, afflictions, loss, grief. We have a tendency to say, oh God, if you love me and if you're right about things, why does this which doesn't seem right, why is it taking hold of me and befalling me? And at those times, somehow we have to summon up the confidence to say, I don't understand your ways and I don't comprehend you, but you're righteous. You're a righteous God. And I know nothing I go through invalidates your love for me as with the Son, so with me. Suffering does not prove itself to be inconsistent with sonship or daughtership. As with Jesus, so too with us. The Father is always up to something good. He's righteous no matter what. And circumstances cannot in any way suggest to us harsh though they may be, that the Father has ceased to love us. Who, in fact, will separate us from the love of Christ? Paul asks in Romans 8, will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And the Lord closes with a declaration, I've made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Listen, if you have come to Christ, then you have a righteous Father. If you have come to the Father through Christ and there is no other way, uh, you have been called into unity with everyone else through the eons who has called upon his name. You're not called into uniformity with other believers. You're called into a special unity characterized by holiness. If you have come to the Father through Christ, think about it. He intercedes for you. If you come to the Father through Jesus Christ, what is bestowed upon you is the same measure of love, of love with which the Father loved the Son from eternity past and with which he chooses to love you and me on into eternity future. But if you think you can come to God by avoiding Christ, you are sadly deceived. All this has to be through Jesus. I have made your name, your character, I have made your personhood known to them. You cannot know God but through Jesus the Son. So says John 1.18, no one has seen God in any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, intimacy, he has revealed, he has explained him. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. 
simple, powerful. Come to Jesus. Join Him by faith. Join a community of believers who, as a result of His indwelling in our lives and through His intercessory prayer, can enable you to live an entirely different life, no longer mastered by sin, free from its power, its penalty, and one day even from its presence. Come to Jesus and live. That's our prayer, oh God, that you would search the hearts of everyone here so that everyone here would be able to answer the question, have you, Lord Jesus, been accepted as personal Savior and mediator between that person and your Father? I pray, oh God, as only you can, you would persuade people of their own sin and of your willingness to forgive it. And your powers, only you can, I pray you would persuade folks of your intense desire to bring them into a new family, a new communion, to change their lives from the inside out and to guarantee them life with you in eternity. I pray there be not one who leave here tonight failing to come to Jesus. This we pray in your name. Amen.